This is Pastor Derek Thomas of Living Witness Ministries, and I want to welcome you to the Living Word Podcast. I pray that today's teaching blesses you, inspires you, and encourages you to live a life worthy of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that we serve. God bless. Our text scripture for our message this morning is found in two places in the same book. And I would encourage you this week as you go about your study time to read the passage in its entirety to gain the full scope of what's being said. Our text is found in the book of Job. It's in the 40th chapter, verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to skip over to the 42nd chapter, verses 7 through 9. Again, that's Job, the 40th chapter, verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to skip over to the 42nd chapter of Job, verses 7 through 9. For your reading, I would encourage you this week, um, as reinforcement for the word, to read actually the book of Job from chapter 38 all the way through to the end of the verse to really get a clearer perspective, a fuller perspective rather of what it is that the Lord is saying to us on today. Um, What you'll find written in our text reads as follows, beginning with verse 1 in the 40th chapter of Job. And again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation of God's Word. Then the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You're God's critic, but do you have all the answers? Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I'll put my hand over my mouth in silence. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. Skipping over to the 42nd chapter of Job, beginning with verse 7. Reads as follows. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I am angry with you and with your two friends. For you have not been right in what you said about me, as my servant Job was. Now take seven young bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. I will not treat you as you deserve, for you have not been right in what you said about me, as my servant Job was. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namanite, did as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. As we speak to the subject this morning, when God has had enough, amen? When God has had enough. Now, The Lord deals with me a lot of different ways as it pertains to messages. Sometimes he ministers to me in a song. Other times he'll minister to me perhaps in something that someone has said. Um, At times he'll minister, minister to me in a situation at work. But when the Lord really wants to get a message across to me, he'll just come straight up from the word. And I'll just hear his voice as clear as you hear mine. And he'll say what the subject is in the situation. I was on the phone with a friend of mine and 
I was fussing about situations that I knew ultimately God was in control of. And I've been fussing about this for a while. I did, I get, you know how you get frustrated sometimes? You just get to the point where you're like, enough already. You just, you just had it. You just like, nobody's doing anything, so I've got to do something. That can be a dangerous proposition because sometimes, particularly when it, it pertains to matters of God, we're already doing something with God having us stand still. That's why the word tells us to be still and what? Know that I am God. But every now and then, in the be still standpoint, we get sick and tired of being still, and we're like, all right, enough. Enough of being still. Something's got to be done. So I'm in the midst of my diatribe of what I'm going to do about it, how I feel this needs to take place, and how this and how that. In the midst of me running my mouth, I'm basically saying uh, how much I'm doing this and how much God's not doing that. That's not a good place to be in. So in the, midst, in the middle of me fussing, God brought back to my remembrance a study that I'd done just in general study many years ago and a piece of paper fell out of my Bible and there was nothing fancy about it there was nothing deep about it it just said those five words on it when God has had enough and I'm like whoa I think I just stumbled across something my friend was like what do you mean you think I just stumbled across something I'm like you know what I have to call you back I still haven't called him back because the God's, been, God's been dealing with me so tough about this situation what happens oftentimes when we get involved in situations in life is that circumstances start to happen, wheels start to turn, and things start to build. And when it gets to the point that a person says they've had enough, that means that they're ready for something to change. They've given ample opportunity for change to voluntarily take place. And they're ready to now step in and initiate the change. In nuclear physics, there's a term known as critical mass. And without going too far into it, in large part because I don't know that much about it, but critical mass is basically, in nuclear terms, when all the materials that are needed for a nuclear bomb are at just the right levels so that all it needs is a spark. And when the spark comes, you got a full-blown explosion and you got destruction. So that, that term has been taken and moved to sociodynamic terms and in a societal standpoint critical mass is a, a sufficient number of people that have adopted an idea a social system on innovation to the point that all it takes is just a catalyst of some sort to bring about wholesale change God desires wholesale change to be brought about among his people in today's society when we look at the world today, when we look at the plight of mankind, when we look at what's going on in the political arena, when we look at how the morals and values of our society have fallen to a new low, and just when you accept just how low it's fallen and you can somewhat comprehend what happened, the floor falls out and it falls even lower, and you're like, how far, how far down are we going? Think about God the Creator. Think about you as a parent, your children. You see your children seemingly doing worse and worse and worse and worse. At some point, you're going to reach a point of critical mass, and as a parent, you're going to say, enough. You're going to grab that child by his or her shoulders, enough, and you're going to shake him. What are you doing? You know better than this. You are better than this. You were raised better than this. Yes. In our text, we see God has reached that point with his children. He has four sons here in the midst of this situation. Three of them 
went off the deep end because they felt that they could fix the situation that the fourth one understood was not theirs to fix. Job understood that God was in control. Job was the one that had suffered the greatest amount of loss. Job was the one that had lost family and had lost friends and had lost everything. Yet his three friends, in air quotes, were the ones that were giving Job the business about how obviously, Job, you must have did something wrong. Obviously, Job, it has to be you. Obviously, Job, you made God mad. You did something wrong. You messed up somewhere. And God is listening to this. And I'm sure God, if I could just use my spiritual eye and, and look at this, God is probably shaking his head like, no, that's not what happened. No, you guys got it wrong. No, that's not how it's going here. And God finally reached the point where he had to step in, which brings us in the middle of his discourse, which is where we find our text. In the middle of God's, and to put it in layman's terms, in the middle of God going off in the situation, because it was so wrong, we find our text. We find God saying here in the middle of it. Now, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? In other words, you got all the answers. You're the one that's been popping your mouth off. You're the one that feels that you can fix the situation. Let me remind you of just who I am in the situation. God is basically saying, I've had enough, but I'm not going to deal with you as the world would deal with you because you know how we would deal with people if we've had enough of them. If we're honest with ourselves, we know how we deal with folks if we had enough of them. I'm just going to leave it right there. But I'm so glad that the word says that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But that's a weighty proposition because in saying that, because we're children of the Most High God, He desires us to function as He would function in the situation. Which in three out of four cases did not happen, but we want to look today at the fourth situation, which is Job. Our text here reminds us that we have to assume the proper posture in God's presence before it's too late, because God is reaching a point where He's saying, I've had enough. He's reaching a point where the Son of Man is coming back. This time he's not coming as a baby in a manger. This time he's coming as a conquering king to take back what belongs to him. There's a saying in business in the whole success arena that if you're not on the way, you're in the way. Now if you're on the way, that means that you're rolling with the person that's driving. But if you're in the way, you're subject to getting ran over. Because if you're in the way, you're going to get knocked out of the way. God is letting us know clearly that he needs us to be on the way and be about his father's business because when the time comes for action, when God has truly had enough and it's time to move, we don't want to be found in God's way because if we're found in God's way, I'm here to let you know he's going to make sure that we get out of his way. Amen? Amen. So you may say, well, Okay, you're saying assume the proper posture in God's presence before it's too late, and I, I don't want to get ran over by God, so, so how do I do that? I'm glad you asked me that question. There are three ways that we do it. The first way that we do it is by being a waiter. Amen? We've got to be a waiter. And it's by design that that's the first characteristic because it's the noun form of it and the verb form of it. We've all been to fine restaurants in our lifetimes. We've seen good waiters and waitresses. And we've seen some waiters and waitresses that have a little bit left to be desired. 
But the one thing that's true, no matter how good or how not quite as good the waiter or waitress that you've met has been, the one thing that runs true is that they're there, catch this, to serve. Amen. Far too often we forget that we've been placed here on the earth not to be served, but to serve. Serving often means that we are put in situations that we may not always ask for, that we may not always understand. But we've got to be willing to do the greater work of service. Because in a natural sense, a good waiter or a good waitress not only gets what's allocated to them in the form of their salary, but they get a little bit extra based on their efforts called a tip. And if you're a very good waiter or a very good waitress, your tips far exceed the basic salary that you receive. Why? Because it's directly linked to how well you serve. If you're not a good waiter or a good waitress, you're not going to get big tips. If you're very good at what you do, you will get much larger tips. And every now and then, if you're consistent in how well you do what you do, you might be blessed with someone to come in to give you something that's extraordinary in the way of a tip. It's a blessing because of the blessing that you've been to so many. So if we go back to our text and we look, and in your reading, I would encourage you to read uh, chapters 38 and 39 to deal with this point. You'll see that God is starting to list off all that he's done. He's starting to list off all that he is. And, and, and he uses a series of questions here, beginning at the first verse of chapter 38, to illustrate how little Job actually knew about creation and about God's ways. If I could paraphrase, he was saying, look, where were you on day one when I said, let there be light? And there was. What, what, what word in that sentence did you say? Where were you on day two when I said, let the, 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 the greater light be divided from the lesser light? Where were you on day three, for instance, when I said, let the land be here, let the water be there? Where were you on day four when I said, let the fowl of the air be created here, and let the beast of the field go here, and let the fish, and let the fish of the sea fill the waters? Where were you when all these things happened? I don't remember hearing your voice anywhere in the conversation. I don't remember uh, uh, saying, uh, um, Joe, what are your thoughts on this? I don't remember. It's saying anyway. I don't remember my, my, my writer that wrote this thing that I inspired to say, and, and, and Job said thus and so. I don't remember you having a say in all of that, Job. If Job knew nothing of these mysteries, how could he know anything about God's character? And that question rings true for us today. If we don't know anything about the mysteries surrounding how this earth was created, and I've seen all the shows, I've... I've I've seen the, the, the whole Big Bang Theory. I've seen the evolution things. We had to watch them in school. I've seen them all. When I'm a believer in, 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 in the Big Bang Theory, you want to know how my Big Bang Theory goes? Here's how my Big Bang Theory goes. God said it and bang, it happened. That's my Big Bang Theory. If God said it, it happened. Just like that. Because God is God and he can do what he desires to do. But so often we get up, get caught up in the, in the, in the point of, well, God, we need, we need you to do this. And God, we need you to do that. And God's like, excuse you, I'm not a genie. I'm not the one that's at your beck and call. I'm not the one that when you need something, you call on me. And that's the only time you call on me. I'm the one that you're serving. You're, I'm not the one at your service. But far too often, those of us that profess the name of Christ treat God oh, yeah, I know 
like, like he's a genie. Treat God like he's the waiter. Treat God like we're at a restaurant that, 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 that he's at our beck and call. When in fact, it's the other way around. Because in my mind's eye, I can hear God saying in the midst of that conversation, yeah. on day six, when I said, let us make man in our image and our likeness, I don't remember you being in the room, Job. You know what, Job? You weren't in the room. You know why you weren't in the room? Because you hadn't been created oh, yeah, yet. Yeah, I remember that. So in other words, we have to understand and remember that God created us to serve him. Because after man was created, it's made very clear in the word that we were created to have dominion over the fowl of the air and over the beasts of the field and over the fish of the sea. We were created to do two things. We were created to worship God and we were created to have dominion. Those are the two things we were created to do. We were created to, 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 to serve and we were created to have dominion over what the one that we serve has given us charge over. So what Job did is he was talking and debating back and forth with the three that just had it wrong, trying to defend his position. But what was happening was Job was starting to get a little bit tired and his defense was starting to get a little bit weak and he was starting to get a little bit frustrated. In other words, he was starting to get human, just like us. He was getting to the point where he'd had enough. He's like, you know what, it's three on one here. I'm getting tired. And, and maybe, just maybe, you all have a point, but I don't believe you do. But God, they are making some points. And you have been awful quiet in the midst of all of this. Now, I believe you, but I'm, I need, give me something. Be careful what you ask for. If you ask God to give you something, God might fool around to give you himself, which is what happened here. And when God does that, are you really ready for what God has for you? Far too many of us ask God, God, use me. I want you to use me of whatever the cost. But then when we get the bill and we realize that the cost is more than we have to pay, we, we feel like, Lord, we don't know what to do here. We find ourselves shaken by the reality that we are the creation and not the creator. When God's had enough, first we have to realize that we are there to serve him, not to be served. Amen. So we have to be waiters and wait on God to move. We have to be waiters and wait on God to give us the direction. We have to be waiters and wait on God, worshiping our father Abba in the midst of our transition. That's the acronym that God gave me for wait. W-A-I-T. Worship Abba in the midst of your transition. No matter where you are, realize that first and foremost you were created to worship God. No matter what's going on, Lord, I thank you that I'm at the highest high, highest point of my life. Lord, I thank you that I'm at the lowest point of my life. Lord, I thank you that I don't feel well today, but I feel well enough to give you praise. Lord, I thank you that even though my heart is broken, it's still beating. Whatever the situation is, you give God thanks because the Bible says in everything and give thanks because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Amen. So secondly, not only does he call us to be a waiter, but secondly, right. he calls us to be Amen. a worshiper. Now, this particular passage of scripture, our text came in the middle of the two diatribes that God went on when he had the series of questions. It, went, it, it, it came about in the middle of them. So the second component of this happened in the succeeding verses of the 40th chapter. After God established the fact that you had nothing to do with creation, you had nothing to do with what went on, on, with what went on, on the outside, so now that I've got that clear, that you're here to serve and not be served, 
I need you to understand just what I'm worth to you. I had a, a baseball card when I was little because I always loved baseball. And it was like, it was, it was a, I forgot who it was. I don't remember who the person was. I never heard of him before. And I had the baseball card. I never heard the person before. So I'm like, hey, man, you want this baseball card? I don't know who this person is. You got, you got a, a, a Ron Sano baseball card. I want that. If you give me that, I'll give you this no-name person so you can have this card. Okay. So I'm like, okay. So he's like, okay, great. I'll take it. Okay, okay, fantastic. So I got it. I'm happy I got my Ron Sano card. Well, some years later, I was reading a magazine as I got a little older. And I ran across this person's name uh, whose card I had. And I, and I was sick. The name of the person whose card I had was Honus Wagner. Now, if any of you are into baseball card collecting, a Honus Wagner original rookie baseball card sold at that time, and this was about 25 years ago because I was still much, I was much younger than I, than I am now. At that time, the Honus Wagner rookie baseball card in mint condition, meaning there was nothing wrong with it, sold for about three or four million dollars because they only made like so many. And I just happened to get one. I didn't know who the heck Honus Wagner was. I didn't know. I'm like, I don't know who this person is. I'm, I want this person. I know who Ron Sano is. I want, I want that one. But I was sick when I found out the value of what I had. But I gave it away because I figured that there was something that was more valuable than it. Far too many of us that profess the name of Christ do just that. We think that the mundane things, the things that don't look pretty, the things that aren't glittery, the things that aren't popular, well, that can't be a value. Like salvation, like prayer, like fellowship, like faithfulness like commitment, like those fundamental truths that God has instilled in each of us that he takes and uses to make us the living witnesses that he calls us to be, that those things are not valuable. I'd rather be popular. I'd rather be rich. I'd rather be wealthy. I'd rather be uh, 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 known far and wide. So what God had to do here is he had to go back in and now give Job a value lesson. So God used in this discourse the majesty of his power and of his creation to remind Job that God in fact is the only one who can save it's not your money your money can't save you your prestige can't save you your penthouse can't save you your cars can't save you your your mates can't save you your company can't save you your ministry can't save you only God can save you that's why Jesus said in the word, what profit a man to gain the whole wide world and lose his soul. his soul? But people stop there. But the, the question remains that was written after that, which is even more important than that statement. Is there anything worth more than your soul? Like me with that homeless Wagner card. No. That homeless Wagner card, I gave it away for a card that was decent, but it wasn't worth $3 million. Far too many of us that have professed the name of Jesus Christ have sold our soul out for things that, in relation to our souls, have no value. We've sold our soul out for popularity. We've sold our soul out for compromising the gospel. We've sold our soul out for momentary pleasure of the flesh. We've sold our soul out for the highs that come from drugs or alcohol. We've sold our souls out in the purity that comes with having a soul that's sold out for Christ for a short-term euphoria that comes to our flesh. 
And God is letting us know that we've got to be a worshiper. And worship is from a British word, worship, that literally means a value. Worship means that I'm going to take every aspect and fiber of who I am and I'm going to focus and harness every bit of my energy and expression of gratitude and love towards this item that's worth everything to me. That item obviously should be God. So when we come on the Lord's Day to worship, we're coming to let God know at that designated hour that you're worth everything to us, God. You're worth our time. You're worth our energy. You're worth our treasure. You're worth our talents. That's why the word lets us know to stir up the gifts that are in you. Because God's not giving us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and a sound mind. Far too many of us come to church thinking like, the church, they're thinking that worship is like the gong show. Well, the Lord's giving me a little gift to sing, but if I go up there and I don't sound the best, people are going to start booing me and they might gong me and I'm not going to go up there. That's not what it's all about. God knows exactly what gifts he's given us. He knows what's going to come out of you because, heck, he put it in you. And if he put it in you and he's giving you the impetus to use it at that point in time, he knows what's coming out of you. It don't matter who knows or who doesn't know what's coming out of you. It don't even matter whether or not what's coming out of you they like or not. Because it's not about them. It's about God. But far too many people have gotten so caught up, well, pastor might not like me prophesying right here. Or, or pastor might not like it if I, I stand up and give a word of encouragement here. Or pastor might not like it if, if I sing a song here, if I ask my permission and I sing my song and I don't hit every note right. It's not about what pastor likes. It's about what God desires. Far too many of us have taken people or places or things and put them in positions that have been reserved for God. And God is to the point now where he's saying, you know what, enough, enough of me being relegated to the backseat, enough of me being relegated to second position, enough of me being displaced from the throne of your heart, which is where I reside, enough of me being miscast and outcast. I need and want and desire and demand that I'm placed in my proper perspective. So let me remind you of just how valuable I am. Let me remind you of just how valuable your soul is. Let me remind you of just how valuable and how necessary a relationship with me is. The word says that there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. There's only one way to salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ. There's only one avenue to get in. There's only one way in, but there's a whole lot of ways out. Amen. And far too many people on nice, smooth expressways, rolling at cruising speed with nothing in front of them but land, not even realizing and knowing that at the end of that nice super highway, there's a cliff that leads straight to death, hell, and the grave. That's why Jesus said in the parable when he told about the rich man wanting to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he said that for you to sell all of your goods to the poor, that's the one thing that you need to do. And the man was grieved and he was sorry and he couldn't do it. And Jesus said, it would be easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the rich man has stored up his treasures here on earth. Because like me with that baseball card, they didn't realize the value of what they really had in the form of salvation in their proper place in heaven. When we're worshipers, we understand the value of what we have. When we're worshipers, we know that when God's had enough, it's time to worship. Whether God's had enough or not, it's time to worship. Because as long as we're in a state of worship, we're keeping proper perspective of who God is. As long as we're in a state of worship, we're keeping proper understanding of the value of who God is. 
As long as we're in a state of worship, we're keeping a proper understanding of what we must do to not allow ourselves to be sold out for anything other than God. Amen. Which leads us to the last thing that we have to be. And most importantly, we have to be a witness. Amen. We got to be a witness. How many people here have had jury duty in their life at some point in time? When I go to jury duty, I go with, with mixed feelings. I go to jury duty, number one, out of a sense of obligation because I know that as an American, I'm supposed to go. I go to jury duty with an altruistic sense of I have the capacity to actually make something right if it's not right. I also go to jury duty with a sense of dread because I'm like, I don't want to get caught up and have to sit downtown for a week or two weeks listening to somebody else's drama. But at the end of the day, I realize that being part of a jury is an important position because when you're part of a jury, you ultimately have to make a decision that could be a life or death decision in someone's life based on the testimonies of individuals that you have to determine whether or not you trust. The most important people in a trial are not the accused and the accuser. The most important people in the trial aren't the press corps that's covering the trial. The most important people in the trial are not the officers in the court. Do you know who the most important people in the trial are? The witnesses. You know why? Because it's because of the witnesses and because of the witnesses' testimony that the jury has to formulate a picture of what the situation was like on the day or night in question. The witnesses have the ability to make or break any case. The witnesses have the ability to paint a picture of either guilt or innocence. Being a witness is a weighty proposition because it's through the words and actions of that witness that opinions are formulated. For those of us that have said yes to Jesus Christ, we have the most important position that we can have that can be entrusted to us at this stage of our journey. And that's being a witness. Because we're a witness of Jesus Christ. We're a witness of the goodness of God. We're a witness of what the Word says. We're living, breathing examples of what the Word talks about when it says whatever it is that we're talking about. So in our text here, moving over to the 42nd chapter, we realize just how, jank, just how thankful Job's friends had to be that God wasn't going to deal with them according to their rules, but by grace. Because remember, God by this time has stepped in and he went off and he has said enough. He is wise enough. This is what needs to happen. So by right, this is what I should do to you. By right, this is what should happen to me. By right, this is what should happen. However, look at what it says beginning with verse 7. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, what it should say is, he quickly and promptly dismissed and destroyed his three detractors. But it's not, it doesn't say that. It says he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, who is a ring leader of these three knuckleheads, I'm angry with you and with your two friends, for you've not been right in what you said about me as my servant Job was. So that right there was condemnation. That right there, it should have been an end right there. 
But because of the God that we serve, which is why it's so awesome and so easy to worship him, because of the God that we serve, because of the love that he has for us, and his love is an action word. It's just not four letters that roll off our tongue because it sounds good. He doesn't tell us I love you and then don't do anything for us. He shows us he loves us by giving the way he gives. Long before there was a John 3.16, there was a Job 42 and 8. He said, now take seven young bulls, seven is the young number of completion, and seven rams, two is the number of witness. So he, he wanted a complete witness in taking seven of these two different animals. These two animals that would be looked at in man's eyes as aggressive animals. And I want you to take them as a witness to of your humility and your commitment to me and your repentance and sacrifice them. Check out what goes on, what, what happens next. Not only am I going to give you forgiveness, but I'm going to show you what happens when you do this thing my way. Take these things and go to my servant Job, the one that you were trying to castigate and say that he had it all wrong, the one that you were trying to convince to think your way. The one that you swore up and down had done something wrong. He didn't do everything wrong. He did it all right. Go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will witness as I add that in. Now he'll, he'll give, be a witness to you of what should happen. How many people here, no show of hands, because I'm guilty of it too. How many people here have had not told you so a moment in their life? You know what I told you so moment is, right? You could be your, your best friend. It could be your spouse. It could be your kids. It could be whatever. Swore up and down that their way was right. And you tried to tell them, this isn't the right way to go. Because if you go this way, this is going to happen. And they know you're wrong. And they go the way they want to go. And the very thing that you said was going to happen, is going to happen. And you see them in the midst of their despair and in the midst of their lowest point. And it's human nature to say what? I told you so. God could have, God had put Job in a position where Job could have said, I told you so. I told you that what I was saying was right. I told you that the God that I have is able to do this. I told you that the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I told you, I told you, I told you. But he didn't do that. Why? Because he was being a living witness of what God would do, not what we would do. And that's what God desires us to be. He desires us to be witnesses of what he would do in situations, not what we would do in situations. It's easy to know what we would do in situations because, heck, I'm part of the we. I don't need to look to you to tell me what to do in this situation. I know what I would do in this situation. I tell them something. I tell them where to go, how to get there, they can leave now. But that's not what God would want us to do because God's ways are not our ways, nor his thoughts, our thoughts. So it says here, my servant Job will pray for you. And I will accept his prayer on your behalf. This is critical. I will not treat you as you deserve. For you have not been right in what you said about me as my servant Job was. That's awesome. This is why we have to be a witness. Because God is the ultimate judge in the courtroom in which we are portraying out this case, which is our lives. God's not a judge that can be bribed. He's not a judge that can be bought. He's not a judge that's going to get it wrong. He knows what's going to happen long before we do. But his way is to allow it to play out and to give us an opportunity to get it right. It's kind of like an open book test. One thing that's changed about the ed educational system, and I found it out when I went to my son's parent-teacher conferences, and it made me mad, but I understand it. 
it's an open book, open everything policy. When I was in school, I'm sure when you were in school, if you took a test and you got an F on it, guess what you got in the book? You got an F. If you didn't turn homework in and you got a zero on it, you got a zero. Which meant if at semester time, if your grades average out to an F, guess what the heck you got? An F in, in my house grounded. But I, went to, I, I go to my son's parent-teacher conferences and they're like, well, Mr. Thomas, your son is doing very well in these classes. He's got a couple of things here that he didn't score very well on. But if he comes in and he, if he comes in at this certain time, he can redo the assignments. And if he gets a better grade on the assignments, it erases a bad grade. I'm like, what? So you mean to tell me that he's pretty much got an open book, open test, open everything path to get straight A's? Absolutely, because catch this, we believe in our children excelling and we want them to have every opportunity to get it right. Because education is about, catch this, it's about learning from your mistakes. I'm like, well, shut my mouth. Where were y'all at about 25 years ago when I was in high school going through but I looked at it and I extrapolated it to real life and I brought it to where we are today. That's how God deals with us. When we fall, he doesn't say, I told you so, and leave us laying there. That's what you get. No. He picks us up. He dusts us off. He corrects us. And he gives us another opportunity to get it right. Because that's the God we serve. And I see my son taking advantage of, in the educational system, what we as believers have had access to from the foundation of the world that we don't take advantage of. We're so quick to, to, to think that God's ways are like our ways. Oh, well, I messed up, so I can't go to God. He won't forgive me. Yes, he will. Because he said he would. Think back to the parable when, when Jesus said, how many times you got to forgive? Not seven, 70 times seven, which was a ridiculous number in relation to the matter at hand. But it was designed to help us see and understand that our lives should be a constant, constant cycle of repentance, restoration, salvation, worship, stumble, repentance, and so on. It's not to say that we live our lives any kind of way. I'm not saying I'm giving you license to sin. I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when we fall prey to sin, we don't have to stay there. Kind of like when I was trying to learn how to swim. I jumped in some water and I was freaking out thinking, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'm going to die, I don't know what to do. And the person who was trying to teach me how to swim was like, Derek, just stand up, it's three feet of water. I was so caught up in what I saw right around me that I didn't stop to think, you know what? This pales in comparison to where I really am in reality. I'm in a bad situation right now. I'm in trouble right now. But all I got to do is stand up because when I stand up, I'm elevating above trouble because I'm six feet tall. The water's three feet high. When I stand up, I'm out of danger. Far too many of us that profess the name of Christ are wallowing in situations and circumstances where God is just telling us, just stand. If you stand for righteousness sake, you will elevate yourself and me above the situation. You don't have to partake in that situation. You can elevate yourself above the circumstance. You don't have to partake in what's going on. You can elevate yourself above the circumstance. And guess what? In elevating yourself above the circumstance, you're elevating me. And Jesus said, uh, not only naturally, but prophetically, when he was about to be crucified, that if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. Not only as I'm, as I'm being lifted up on this stake to die six hours one Friday, in your eyes, but if my name be lifted up, 
throughout the earth. I'll draw men and women that are lost unto me. God is still waiting to forgive us and restore our fellowship with him when we make mistakes. And we shouldn't let our past actions and our, and our attitudes keep us from knowing the true God. Now the fact that God restored and, and even doubled Job's wealth isn't incidental, it's intentional. One thing I say to my team at work all the time, everything we do from the way that we stand to the way that we gesture, gesture to the cadence of our voices, everything that we do is intentional. Why? Because it's leading to an end result of success. God created us just the way he created us, not by accident. The way you walk is not an accident. The way you talk is not an accident. The way you look is not an accident. The hobbies you have are not an accident. The talents you have are not an accident. Even the ailments that you might suffer from are not an accident. It's all intentional. It's by God's divine design because he's created each of us to reach a specific individual or group of people. So instead of saying what we can't do, let's remember that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Instead of saying what we're not able to do, let's remember that we're able to do exceeding, abundantly, above all that we can ask or even think according to the power that's at work in us. Let's remember that we've been called to be witnesses, living witnesses of God in the earth so that when God has had enough and he sends his son back to reclaim what's rightfully his we're in the claim check area waiting to be claimed we're not getting ran over and being destroyed by fire so here we have at the end of this message where we started at the beginning we have God seeing everything that we've done hearing everything that we've said Knowing everything that he knows about every, every thought, word, and deed we've done in this body. And he sent teachers, as it says in Ecclesiastes, to teach the wisdom of how to function. And we've made it more difficult than we've got to make it because we've gotten so caught up in this rhetoric and that discourse. But as it says in Ecclesiastes, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Obey his commandments. Be a waiter. Be a worshiper. Be a witness. So that when God has had enough, the enough that he's had is not enough of you. Amen? Amen. Amen. We thank and praise God for his word on today. And we thank and praise God for all that he's continuing to do in our lives and through our lives today. I pray that you were blessed by today's word. The Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we would be saved. If you've never taken the opportunity to do either one of those things, won't you join me now in prayer? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I come before you a sinner. I believe that you sent your son to die that I might live. I believe that he lived, died, rose again, ascended to heaven, and is coming back for sinners just like me. I confess my sin. I ask you into my heart 
and I ask you into my life. Thank you, Lord, that by faith I am now saved. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'd like to welcome you into the household of faith and into a loving relationship of salvation with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please email me and let me know of your experience or if you have any prayer requests or praise reports, please email me. The email address is livingtowitness at gmail.com. That's living, the number two, witness at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Pastor Derek Thomas encouraging you to live your life as a living witness.